It's September 7th, 2020. This is Rook. When we talk about the majority of folks living in the Iranian diaspora, we usually reference the first wave to be those who left Iran in the 1960s and 70s, particularly during or after the revolution of 1979. But what about a Jewish kid from Shiraz who came to North America in the 1950s, landing in snowy Minnesota, no less? And what if that shy kid would become the first Iranian mayor of a major American city? The story of Jimmy Jamshid Del Shad and how he became the two-time mayor of Beverly Hills is the stuff of lore. He joins me for a feature episode on his journey, contracting COVID, and sharing his valuable perspective on 2020. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 42 of Rook. Nice to have you along. Hoshomadin. Mayor Jimmy Del Shah joining me in just a few moments. Hi, Groovy Shia. Hello, Zianjan. What's up? Um, sky's up. The sky is up. <laughs> yeah. Your English is getting better. Yes. How was your weekend? Uh, it was good. It was good. I, I did some well, belated project. and yeah. It was Kheli Khub. It was really good, actually. Okay. I think I, I think it was the last weekend of summer for me. It feels like that yes. actually. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, <laughs> back to school. Uh, I went to a movie. Whoa. Right, the first time in uh, people have done. I, it's been months in a theater. I, in a theater. Whoa. Yeah. Well. <laughs> uh, well, in in a big Toronto movie theater. I went and it was fine. I mean, there wasn't very many people there, uh-huh. and so we went and and uh, we wore masks and and we were sort of careful. And they have all the seats socially distanced, so you know you set off in pairs and cool. and there's one row that's on either side of you that's completely uh, uh, barricaded off. You know, so uh-huh. it was fine. And I and uh, first of all, it was so nice to be back in a movie theater. And second of all, I saw this Christopher Nolan film, Tenet. Oh, have you heard about this? No, actually, I've heard about this. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I have some issues with it, uh, just as a film. Uh, I p- wouldn't necessarily give it a hundred stars out of a hundred, but it, but it is worth the price of admission just for the mind-bending ride it takes you on. You know, this is the guy who did um, Memento and Inception, and yeah, Nolan is like prophet for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, he he is, and it, it's one of those films that there's no word of a lie. While I was watching it. I was thinking about how I have to see it again to answer so many questions I have, you know? Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, I heartily recommend. If you can go to a movie theater wherever you're listening to this uh, in a safe, responsible way, uh, then uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was nice. It was nice to be in a theater, yeah. you know? Maybe a little scary. What, what, what was its name? Tenet? Tenet. Tenet. The movie? Yeah, yeah. Tenet. Yeah, Tenet. yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, listen, something exciting, Shia. Today, mm-hmm. we are launching our first edition of Rook Reads. So, uh, 
this is going to be our blog on our website. Um, and we're going to have members of our extended Rook family write pieces on how certain episodes or interviews affected them or how they may agree or disagree with the perspective of, of a certain guest, you know. And we will uh, also start to open this up to our audience who can send in submissions and might, uh, and then we might make your piece uh, the Rook read for that week. You like that idea? Yes, I love it. And uh, d did you choose the name Ro Rook Reed? Actually, I did not choose the name Rook Reed. The Rook Reed. Uh, somebody else did, but I but I think it's a great name. Yeah, yeah. yeah Rook yeah. Reed. Yeah. yeah, the Rook Reed. We have the Rook Roundtable, the yeah, Rook Reads, the Rook Minute. Yeah. yeah. So the guy who is starting this out is a fellow named Navon. I know you know Navon. Uh, he's a, he is a member of our extended Rook family. Uh, we played some of his music yes, a few weeks remember, ago on the yeah. show. So he's an Iranian-Canadian singer-songwriter and blogger in Toronto. He's 23 years old, and uh, he brings a certain perspective as a young guy who's only been in Canada for a few years uh, to what he is hearing in terms of the Rook interviews and episodes. So Navon, he'll actually be here a little later in this show to tell us a bit about his, uh, his first post. But you can go to our site right now and read the first Rook read. Uh, it's in our blog section. You just press on blog when you go to rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. Great. Cool. Yeah. Shall we get to our featured guest? Yes. All let's right. Go. When we talk about iconic figures in our global Iranian community, my guest today is certain to come to mind. He is surely the pride and joy among many Iranian residents of Beverly Hills, but that appreciation and recognition spreads across the diaspora and even in, in Iran, where he is well known. He is the former two-term mayor of the city of Beverly Hills, California, and has held the distinction of being the highest-ranking elected official of Iranian descent in the U.S., as well as an award-winning entrepreneur and business executive. He was also the first Iranian-American to become two-term president of the Sinai Temple, Los Angeles' oldest and largest conservative congregation, and the first Iranian-American selected to lead a large American synagogue. Jimmy Jamshid Delshad was born in Shiraz and immigrated to the United States in 1959 as a teenager. After obtaining his degree in electrical engineering from the University of Southern California, he embarked on a career in computer technology. Technology. Throughout the years, Mayor Jimmy has been praised and awarded many times and was the man who turned Beverly Hills into America's first smart city. He's also notable for his humor, his ebullient personality, and his music skills. I mean, who else can play jingle bells on the Santur? He is currently <laughs> the official ambassador of Beverly Hills and an acclaimed management consultant, motivational speaker, and investor as the chairman of Delshad Capital Group. And right now, Jimmy Jamshid Delshad joins me from Beverly Hills, California. Hello, sir. Salam, how are you? I'm very well, merci. It's wonderful to talk to you, my friends in Canada. Uh, I have a very special place in my heart for the Iranians in Canada. I met them a few years ago and they left a, a great uh, influence on me. So I love them and I'm happy to talk to you. You you are in Beverly Hills, yes? It would be profoundly so profoundly disappointing if the much-celebrated mayor of Beverly Hills was in Orange County or something right now. Are you no, in Beverly Hills? Yeah, I'm in Beverly Hills and in order to be involved in the politics of Beverly Hills and be an ambassador, goodwill ambassador of Beverly Hills, uh, I do have to live within Beverly Hills. So 
I've been here and I'm still here. I do travel other places, but that's my hometown is Beverly Hills. You know, it is such an honor to have you on the program. And first things first, I've had the good fortune of speaking to you once before, and I called you Mr. Mayor. But for the record, what do you prefer I call you? Is it Mr. Mayor or Mr. Delshot or Jimmy or Jamshid? It's a lot of pressure. What do you What do you most prefer? Well, uh on, a, on an occasion like this, you don't need to call me Mr. Mayor. Other p- places when I go, if uh, they want to be polite, they do call me Mr. Mayor. But I think in this uh, uh, very uh, informative discussion, uh, I'm, I'm fine if you just call me uh, Jimmy. Well, you're very kind, and I appreciate getting to call you Jimmy. Jimmy, I want to get into your personal story. I want to get into your perspectives on the evolution of the Iranian diaspora and some of our challenges, uh, as you've had such an essential vantage point to educate us from. But, but I have to say before that, you know, we were supposed to have you on this program about a month ago, and then you had to cancel because you were not feeling well. I later found out that you had COVID. How, how are you doing now? Uh, I'm really doing great. Uh, uh, I did get COVID, uh, even though I was wearing gloves and and mask and spraying my shoes, did everything possible. Uh, I think I went to a a market with my wife just to buy some fruit and I bought her some flowers. And I have a feeling that the flowers had something on them because right after that, I must have touched uh my mask uh with my hand i have no idea because right after that or the day after that i got tremendous pain in my intestine and stomach and when i went to the hospital they said you have the COVID." and i you know i I guess that must have been quite terrifying for you you are undeniably youthful, but you do fall into that vulnerable category of folks over 60 who have to be careful how scared were you uh, when they told me in the hospital, I was very, very scared. Uh, being over 65, it's uh, really scary because of all the stories I had heard. Uh, but the interesting part was that I didn't have any uh, big symptoms. I wasn't short of breathing or, or lungs problem and all that. Uh, it's a special part or type of COVID that attacks the intestine and the stomach and other parts uh, rather than uh, the breathing or anything like so i was lucky in that Uh, there was a lot of pain involved but i was all alone nobody could come visit nobody could come give anything doctors would dress up to come in that room Uh, but i was lucky i was uh, pretty well known in that hospital, Cedar sinai Hospital. And as soon as I checked in, you know, uh, as you said, everybody started calling me Mr. Mayor and coming to my mm-hmm. room, very polite and very nice. They did a great job. That's great. And I'm, I'm feeling great now. I'm very, I'm sure everyone's heartened to hear that you're feeling great. Is it true the news of you contracting COVID made it all the way to Iran? Uh, I had some friends that uh, just came from Iran and they told me, do you know that it was written a a big article on you uh, that the Jewish mayor of Beverly Hills got COVID uh, and he was hospitalized. And as a result, I did get a lot of phone calls from Iran, not just from 
uh, cousins and others from strangers also. Uh, and also, I think the message must have gone other places because I got calls from Israel, I got calls from uh, uh, many other countries. Uh, it was very interesting, but thank God I'm okay. They, I hope they uh, receive this message, not to worry. Uh, actually, I feel better than I went to the hospital. So Good. That's uh, that's. Uh, I have to note. You said that. So that delineation was purposeful. I would imagine that they called you the Jewish mayor of of Beverly Hills. Yeah, because they know me there. Uh, they respect me. They know all about me, and they know I'm the Jewish. And but they're still very respectful, and they uh, they really care for me. So I think that was one way of letting people know who they were talking uh. about. You know, as a former high-profile mayor and still a high-profile ambassador of a city, I cannot help but ask you, before we get into your story, I mean, those of us who are not living in the United States wonder about all the ways the U.S. could have handled this situation of COVID better, given that our vantage point, say from sitting here in Canada, for example, I mean, it, it has been contained better in this country um, as it has been, say, in Germany or in many places in the world. For those, you know, in the early months, we were looking back at Iran, in fact, and shaking our heads at how bad the government or the people there seem to be dealing with things. And then it's almost been as bad or worse in America. Is it frustrating to you to see how the president or those in charge of your country have dealt with this? Uh, it's frustrating that uh, it has caused so much problems. Uh, but I uh, also understand uh, America being so large and so many different states, the governors really control what happens in each state. So it's almost like having many small countries put together and call them United States. Uh, so it's not so much what the uh, presidents do, it's what the governors do that can affect this. But of course, uh, the leaders the, at the president level and all that can set certain guidelines where people can follow. A national policy, if you will. Yeah. Do, do, do you miss being in office? Are there times like COVID where you go, man, I wish I was in that chair so I could call the shots here? Uh, actually, uh, I was uh, uh, because the, there was a lot of uh, demonstrations all over Los Angeles and uh, many of them decided to come to Beverly Hills because it would make a big noise. Uh, so they did come to Beverly Hills. They went to Rodeo Drive. And uh, unfortunately, um, the police kind of stand down and they let them uh, do damages to buildings, to uh, not only offices, but retails and shops and all that. And that was one time I said, I wish I was there. I would have done a lot different than I saw what was happening to my town. Got it. Although there are many people who would uh, will argue that uh, more policing is not the answer as well. But we can leave that. You know, by the way, when people say that you have an accent as mayor, <laughs> how do you respond? Well, uh, I t I'll tell them that... Uh, I assure you, I didn't have an accent until I came to this country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that's called a setup. I feel like you know it's a, like a, a Jay Leno moment where I give you the chance to do your joke. Um, <laughs> all right, well, uh, take a, take us back because this is the re- we can go down the COVID line and the politics of it. But I want to uh, actually we we have you on here to hear your story uh, as this prominent member of the diaspora. You you were the story is you were born in Shiraz in 1940. You spend your early years there. What? This is incredible history to some of us who imagine what it could be like. What can you tell us about being a kid in Iran in the 1940s? Uh, well, it was uh, it was a, at times very difficult and at times very happy. So when I think about it, everything that happened there while I was, I was there in Shiraz till I think I was about 13 years old. And then uh, my family moved uh, to Tehran uh, because my mother uh, was a graduate of American University in Tehran and spoke English and her family were in Tehran. My, my father was in Shiraz in a jewelry business, goldsmith. And uh, at that time, uh, I was trying to uh, be with my family and they decided to move to Tehran so I moved there, but at the beginning, the first you know, 12, 13 years in, in Shiraz, it was uh, bittersweet. There were a lot of good times going everywhere and enjoying uh, Shiraz. It's a wonderful city, wonderful people. Uh, it's great to uh, go to the gardens and to Bagh, as they call it, mm-hmm. and enjoy ourselves. Uh, but at times was a little bit of difficult time because like any other societies we have fanatic people jews have fanatic people christian have it muslims have it so sometimes the fanatic people would not tolerate somebody that's not like them so i did have some difficulty being jewish and young and but i put up with it and i learned from it so Believe it or not, I bless those people right now because what they said and did made me a better man. How would that manifest itself, Jimmy? Would they they call you names or, or shove you or what, what, what was it that, how did it express itself? Uh, it, was, it was mostly like uh, uh, if you were in a school, you couldn't, if, uh, if we heard to play, uh, sports, we were not allowed to play sports. We could not touch a ball uh, because touching a, a ball, you made it digest. That means you made it unclean. On, on so we would sit and, and watch others play. Or if we were in the classroom, I couldn't sit in front row. I had to sit by the Jews in the back row. Uh, things like that. Uh, but But they were very small group of people that were like that and whatever they did it really as i said i blessed them because they made me a better man they made me uh, try to be better and i tell myself i don't want to be like them Mm. so i'm much more uh, open to other minorities open to differences in communities and i think that helped me in uh, not only in business, but helped me in being involved with nonprofit organizations, understanding the problems of uh, poor people, uh, fundraising for them, 
and helping them. And I think that helped me to become a better mayor uh, in Beverly Hills and being able to be the mayor of everybody, whether they voted for me or not, I was the mayor for all of them. Uh, so I think that just made me a better person. It's interesting, uh, you know, on this program in recent uh, weeks, we've had some some different folks uh, who would be part of minority groups growing up in Iran. Homos Ashar would be one of them who I'm sure you're, you're friends with, you know, and she yes. was uh, Jewish growing up in Tehran. Uh, Ervin Khachikian, it was an Armenian uh, Christian who he was growing up in, in Tehran uh, in the 1970s. They paint this picture, Mojran uh, Orli Noy, she was also Jewish in Tehran in the 70s. They paint this picture of quite a harmonious um, pre-revolutionary uh, multi-ethnic uh, version of, of of Iran that actually sounds quite um, romantic. I mean, even though they speak to, of course, some of the systemic or institutional kind of uh, um, discrimination that did take place. Um, so I'm guessing it's regional and uh, the 1950s Shiraz is going to be different from 1970s Tehran. But can you speak to that image that we have of a pre-revolutionary Iran as being quite harmonious? Uh, I think that's a good uh, image, and it is a correct image to have, depending where you were in Iran. If you were in some villages or you were in a small town, that wasn't the case. But if you were in Tehran or other places, educated people, really nobody cared whether you were Jewish, Armenian, or Christian, or Muslim, uh, very friendly with each other, going to each other's houses, uh, playing music with each other and having fun and telling jokes and all of that. So I think uh, it just depended on the people, on their education, and how tolerant they were of of others. So I think the image that you have is, is a good image. Uh, it was a wonderful time when I was in Iran. It was very different. Tehran, I mean, was very different than uh, being in Shiraz. Jimmy, you, you traveled to Israel as a teenager to learn Hebrew. And doing the math, um, that would have been very early in the existence of Israel. Did that trip have a profound effect on you as a 16-year-old? Uh, well, actually, when I went there, uh, uh, I went, uh, there is a place called Kibbutz. Those are places sure. where you go to work, and then you go to learn. Uh, that's where I was, and uh, actually I loved it the time that I was there. It was very different. You work to help others, and you work together. Uh, it's almost like a community that uh, works together for the betterment of the whole community. Nobody really was getting paid for what we were doing. Everybody was doing their share. It was a wonderful time, but I needed to finish up my education, so it was best to go back to Iran and go back to the high school and finish my education and try to go to higher level. I was hoping to go to uh, universities in Iran. That's why I went back to get the education so I could go to higher education. Right, and the story goes that your mother 
is was always enthusiastic about you getting a higher education abroad uh, and, and, and and encouraged you to go to the United States. So at, at the age of 18, you moved to the U.S. and you moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. I, I love Minneapolis. I shouldn't be laughing, but but it seems like it would be quite a stark contrast for a kid from Shiraz who's just spent some time in Israel. What kind of <laughs> culture and climate shock was that for you to land as a in your late teens in Minneapolis? Well, the, the way it happens is that uh, I decided to, uh, actually I wanted to go to somewhere to get higher education. Uh, my mother uh, was very educated and knew English and was teaching us English while we were kids. Uh, but then at the school I went, I was learning French. So I thought maybe I'll go to France, maybe I'll come to America. Decided to come to America and I sent my documents, my educational documents to several universities and the one that uh, answered, responded and accepted me was University of Minnesota, hmm. uh, Minneapolis. And I didn't know at that time, uh, America is America, whether it's Minneapolis or Chicago or Los Angeles. I'm going to America, so they accepted me and I go. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's where I went. I ended up there, but I had no idea about the weather. <laughs> oh my God. Nothing like Shiraz, nowhere, no, nothing, no part of it. Summertime was all mosquitoes and hot, and wintertime was freezing such that we, we had to put salt in the back of our car in order to get through the snow, because you have to throw salt on the snow so your car will not slip. Yes. So there was a lot of adjustment to do there. Uh, but just like before, I wanted uh, to get the best education I could, and I couldn't really afford paying those, so I worked very hard to get uh, on the dean's list, which means I had to get straight A's in my class. So even though I did not know as much English, I had to take classes that uh, did not require as much English, like algebra or, right, or, right. or physics or uh, chemistry, anything like that. And I got straight A's, so they gave me a scholarship to, to be there. But the scholarship did not do enough to be able to take that weather. <laughs> well, one of the ways that you start to fit in, though, I, I love this story. I mean, it's uh, I can picture this. First of all, I should mention you, 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 your brothers were with you. You were living in, in I think, one room together or one little uh, apartment together with your brothers, right? Yeah, I, I had uh, oldest brother was already in in America for about a, a year before I came. And I came with my middle brother together and we went there and to really work there and go to school. We lived there and for that time, everybody had to work uh, right away. So the first job I got was, you know, cleaning a club uh, at night. Hmm. Uh, so the go to like a work as a janitor type as so so that we could make money in order to pay for the school until i get scholarship even after that uh we were planning to uh, uh work but then uh being uh 
musicians in <laughs> yeah. Iran. Yes, this is where I wanted to go with it. I, you turn into the Von Trapp family for a while. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story I love. Tell this story about. I mean, I referenced it in the intro, the jingle bells on the sand tour. But yeah. but you you come from a musical family, I guess, right? Yes, but not not professional musical families because in Iran, my father would not allow us to play professionally because at that time he would be looked down to. They would say you are motreb, uh, you are not a uh, you are not an artist. So we did play. We had a, all three brothers. We played music. I played some tour. One played violin. The other one played accordion. And we used to play for the families here and there. And when I came uh, to America, my brother says, you know, if you're coming here, Santur is not enough, learn something else. So I took about a year of guitar and I learned guitar and Santur and came to Minneapolis. And we were just having fun. And some families invited us to their Christmas party. And we went to the Christmas party. Please bring your instrument, bring your instrument. So we brought the instruments. And then during Christmas, you have to play Christmas songs. So I had learned a few songs and I played Jingle Bell on Santur. Right. And when they hear Jingle Bell with that sound of Santur is so different than any other music. The most exotic version of Jingle Bells that anybody's ever heard. That yeah, was, yeah. was wonderful. And it, it became, uh, we became famous there. So we said, you know what, maybe what we should do is go into it professionally. So we created a group called Delsha Trio. Uh, and uh, uh, we played music for many parties so after that we were invited to many other parties and we said oh that's a lot better than being a janitor we got a lot better money better respect and when we moved uh, to california uh, we did the same and what we did we you know we hired a, an agent and a manager to get us positions and jobs and we did that uh, throughout the school we played even after we got married, we were still playing music professionally for different groups, whether it was a wedding or bar mitzvah or, or a party or something like that. You were that. the Jewish-Iranian version of the Beach Boys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> a lot of non-profit organizations would ask us to play, and depending who we were playing with, we had different customs, whether it was uh, Israeli custom, uh, Iranian custom, or professional Customs also that that was beautiful and we still play music and we still love it not professionally for money but we get together and we have a lot of uh, good times. You know, notwithstanding that very positive um, uh, image that you've just painted, this was, you guys were really the very first wave of Iranians to come to North America. This is long before those who arrived during or right after the revolution in the late 70s, early 80s. What what was it like, Jimmy, to be a, an Iranian kid, a Jewish Iranian kid uh, in California in the 1960s? Uh, I, I think we were... Uh like novelty. I remember being at the school and our teacher or principal would say, don't you have more people like you that you can invite to come to our school? Hmm. They wanted us. They said, your guys are great. This is great. Why don't you bring more people? So we were few 
at the time in schools that were Persian. So they didn't know we were exotic. And there was no uh, downside to it. Uh, I remember uh, driving in Hollywood and then somebody was crossing in front of our car and we stopped to say hello. It was our neighbor from Iran, from Tehran, that we hadn't seen for many, many years. And he invited us to his house. And it was interesting because the next night we went to their house, there was a party and it was a Christmas party. Hmm. And we got to know maybe half a dozen uh, Iranians and that's all they were there. So they opened up the doors for us to meet others. We played music for them and that really opened up the door. It was it was very exotic. It was beautiful. You know, I spoke to um, Dr. Abbas Milani uh, two or three weeks ago on this program, and he came a little bit after you. He, he was, it was the, the mid-60s, but, but um, he, he comes to, to the U.S., and of course he does his university and, and becomes an activist, uh, et cetera. And even though he had integrated into the, uh, you know, Berkeley activist scene and all of that in California, he said he always knew or he, that he always intended that he would go back to Iran. Did you, did you take to America? Did you feel like this was going to be your new home? Or at that point, say from the vantage over the prism of the 1960s, did you feel like this is somewhere you were going to be, but you were eventually going to move back to Iran? Actually, I just wanted to get higher education, go back to Iran. The difficulty I had in Iran was uh, there was a quota uh, of non-Muslims that could get into the University of Tehran. So if you didn't have certain grades or certain money or some something, you couldn't get there. So I decided to get the education here and go back to Iran. I had no interest at that time to stay here. But you don't but go back. I, you didn't go back. I wanted to go back, yes. You didn't, but you didn't. So how, no, I didn't. how, how did it end up that you stayed? Uh, what happened is that once I, once I graduated, uh, I decided uh, as a as a non-resident get some jobs to have some experience in in doing that. So I'll I'll know what to do. That's not just education, but to have experience. So I got hired at the company. Uh, uh, I was in electronics. I had. Uh, a bachelor degree at that time in computer sciences. So they hired me as called a junior engineer. And I started working there and I used my innovations and I invented something for them at that uh, company. What did you invent? It, it was a computer storage uh, that could replace uh, at that time, it could replace an IBM storage oh. that it would have cost a fourth of the cost and it would be four times as powerful. This becomes the same thing that you start your own company doing, right? Yes. In 1978, later, yeah. Right. So, so, so I, go ahead. Yeah. For the company, and the company said, you know what, this is a wonderful thing and it's great you did this. So they did is they applied to get me special preferential visa. And preferential visa, that means we wanted him to stay, get a green card, remain in America uh, as a preference. And at that time, they had visas 
that they would give as preferential uh, to people. And that's how I got my residency. Uh, and once I got my residency, uh, I started working there and I worked at another company. And that's kind of evolved me in staying and doing good here. And this was and uh, I, Los Angeles? Yes, it was in Los Angeles. And do you remember, was there a point where you, um, a, a specific precipitant or, or a cognitive moment where you sort of said, uh, you know what? I'm I'm actually going to be American. I'm going to stay here. Or did it just kind of year after year evolve that way? I think it evolved. Uh, there was no specific time that uh, I said, no, I'm not going to go back. But I was always hoping to be able to get education and also get some experience and go back. So what if I have a green card? I could always go back. I think it just evolved. And then I kept hearing later on that you know the situation is iran is not as uh, tolerant as this as that and maybe it's risky to go back because you've been in america and all that so i delayed going back and then uh, once i got married uh, i became a citizen what year was that when you became a citizen uh i think it was in uh, 72 73 time frame wow. Were you always a a people person, Jimmy? Would it, would it have been obvious to folks meeting a young Jimmy Delshot in in the nineteen sixties in California that this guy is going to become a mayor of a big city? Actually, it was the reverse. Hmm. <laughs> I was very shy. Really, uh, I was very very shy. Uh, uh, I was the third in the, my. I was the youngest. And my other brothers, you know, would take the limelight. I was just following up. I was very shy. I don't know at what point I became uh, totally different. I think once I got my, uh, not just the education, they started uh, giving me more jobs to do. So if I went, for example, uh, to a nonprofit organization, uh, and I think that was, thank God to my wife, she said, you know, you're doing so well in edu in business, you're doing so well as a father, as husband, you know, give back to the community. Why don't you get involved? The community can use you and that would be helpful. Uh, so I got involved in nonprofit organizations, charities, and I was just, a, just a, maybe a committee member, but then, they started pushing me up, you know, why don't you become the chairman of this committee? <laughs> and after that, why don't you become uh, a vice president? And why don't you become this? Why don't you become that? So hang on a that, second, though. When you're playing the, the, the Delshad trio, you're, you're playing music, you're shy? I mean, that seems like it, it doesn't seem like something a shy person would do. No, while, while on the stage, while playing music, no, not shy at all. Only when we are not doing that, I was shy. Ah. So it's it's an like a, you put because it's so pleasurable to get uh, applause. People like you, and then I started later on to separate myself and become myself. And once the education paid off, and I was doing good and financially doing well, uh, I I started to become more of a separate person than mm. anybody else has thought about. And that's when I started getting involved in politics. 
and getting involved in politics just opened me up to totally different person. Let, let me uh, get to that. Let me get to that. By the way, do you have okay. to answer the door? I heard the doorbell ring. Is there an Amazon no. delivery cover or something? <laughs> it's probably Amazon. <laughs> right, right. What have you been ordering, Jimmy? What is it? <laughs> there isn't a time every hour on the hour somebody comes from Amazon, brings something. Really? Is that right? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, you don't go out. You just order. So sure. Sure. Be careful. You know, it's not the the, the credit card doesn't last forever, Jimmy. You have to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. So, uh, what about being funny? Because you're you you're quite well known as the. I mean, I, the first time I remember hearing about you, actually, there's this mayor of Beverly Hills. I guess it would be in the around 2007 when you first became mayor. I heard they called you the funny mayor. Like you're you were known as this funny guy. You uh, was that always a part of your personality? Again, that seems like a disconnect to the guy that you described as being shy when he was younger i think once i wanted to run for public office i had learned from others in order to separate myself from other candidates i had to stand up and what do i stand up with first i stand up by having an accent so when people say hey you have an accent i said i never had an accent until i came to this country they would laugh and then i saw hey they're laughing so i put on a stronger accent (laughs) so i became separate than them then i decided you know they only have few minutes and if i they become a very boring person so i started learning jokes uh, and learned a lot of jokes. And uh, I became uh, funny that people would invite me to come and talk at their home uh, as part of the running for the council. You have to go and talk to a lot of different people. So I would read and experiment with jokes and try it on friends and family, then I would use it there. So then I be- had a a, a large repertoire of jokes. Do you uh, remember any of the jokes? I'll tell you one of them. Sure. Uh, uh, an older couple. <laughs> yes. An older couple go to the doctor for a for a checkup, mm-hmm. and the doctor says, "You know, you guys are doing good at this age. You're wonderful. Everything is healthy. I just noticed that you know you have a problem um, remembering and memorizing." Uh, what should we do? Say, well, in order to improve your memory, what you should do is when you say something, or say something to you, or you say one or something, write it down. Writing down helps your memory. Okay. So they say, great, we're going to do that. So they come home, and the wife says to the husband, "Honey, I'm going to the kitchen to uh, to just get a cup of co- coffee. Would you like me to get you something?" He says, "You know what?" I really love to have some ice cream. Mm. <laughs> what kind? Is it? Vanilla ice cream, uh-huh. and put some chocolate, uh, you know, chocolate syrup and a cherry on top. She says, "Okay, I'll go to you." And that's easy. He said, "The doctor says you have to write it down. Don't you want it?" And he said, "No, it's easy. You just want little vanilla ice cream, chocolate on it, and a cherry on it." Uh-huh. Said, yes. So she goes to the kitchen. Twenty minutes, she come back. And she's got a tray with two sunny side eggs <laughs> with, okay. with some uh, potatoes uh-huh. and then uh, and a cup of coffee. The husband keeps looking at her and she says, what are you looking? He says, what happened to my toast? 
It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible joke, but it's funny. He forgot what he ordered. <laughs> yes, I got the joke. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so okay. So you that's how you became mayor. You did. Yeah. You told the sunny side up joke, and people are charmed. Both. So, and then what happened? People would invite me at different fundraisers. So there is a place in Los Angeles called a Laugh Factory. I sure. don't know if they have one in Canada or other places. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a actually a iconic place. It's where a lot of the big comedians started out in, in, in L- yeah. So I, I, they invited me to go to Laugh Factory and I think uh, Cassie that works with your uh, operation, she started an organization named uh, uh, comics without borders. Yes. So people would come and have comedy, and I would go there. And one time I was just there, and people say, "Say a few words." And when I got up to say a few words, I wrote on the back of a business card I had four or five punchlines, and I started telling jokes up there. And then they just kept on asking me to tell more jokes and all that. Then they invited me several other times to go to the uh, to the Laugh Factory. And I remember uh, the owner of the Laugh Factory, uh, his name was Jamie. Jamie Masada, uh, yeah. Yes, Jamie Masada. And Jamie Masada says, uh, you know, Mayor, I've had governors here, I've had other mayors here, I've had all kinds of people to come here and do that. But when you are on the stage, you own that stage. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a compliment, owning the stage. He says, you're so comfortable there. How did you get there? How did you do that? Come on. So I enjoyed it. I loved it. And then I uh, attached more jokes and more funny but, things. But you know, what I, you know what I take away from the story you just said, though, you just told, in terms of I asked you, were you a funny guy? And, and the, the way you, what you just told us, is you are quite methodical. You you know that you see how something works, then you set about to educate yourself and become it, and you can almost visualize where you're going with that. And, I, and I, in, in, in researching you, at one point I read or, or found somewhere that you had said that before you ever ran for mayor, you could imagine yourself in that chair. Uh, oh. that, that 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 was something that enabled you becoming mayor. And that's interesting to me because no Iranian American had done that yet, not at this kind of prominent level. How did you know you could do it? Tell me about these visualizations that you have. Uh, what I what I learn is uh, part of accomplishing anything is to visualize that you're already there. So one of the ways I did that, I said, if they're looking at me to vote for me, how would they like to see me? Would they like to see me and say, oh, yeah, he looks like a mayor or is just somebody? Excuse me for the phone ringing. No problem. (laughs) It's Amazon calling us. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So, uh, So what I decided to do is dress up as a mayor. I always had a tie. I always had a immaculate clothing. So everywhere I went, nobody saw me with jeans. Nobody saw me with any other clothing while I was running. So what happened is that when I was talking about 
to anybody. I was saying that I was talking to them as if I was already the mayor. Right. And I think that has a lot to do with anything that you want to accomplish. First, see yourself there. Imagine you're sitting there behind a microphone. Imagine yourself behind that desk. But what about the confidence to even know that you could do it, especially if no one else has occupied that position before? I mean, how do you have the confidence to say, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I can get this done. I can become the mayor. Okay, the decision I made is that if I don't win, I think it would be a a drawback on all the Iranians, on the, all the Persians. Don't forget, the reason I decided to run wasn't the always nice thing to do. Yeah, It was right 2011 when when we had the 9-11 situation in America. 2001, yeah, yeah, after, yeah. Excuse me, 2001. Yeah. So, um, uh, I was uh, I was in my car and I was actually going to a funeral outside Los Angeles. It was in uh, Burbank. I was going to West West Lawn in Burbank, and I stopped at the gas station. See where is this funeral place? Where is this? And the guy looked at me and says, "Go to hell. Go back to your country." Hmm. I said, "Oh my God, uh, they are already." deciding that I'm another minority here. I came from Iran, now I'm a minority here. So I decided to put an American flag on my uh, lapel. Sorry, just to, just, to, just to explain to everybody what, what, we're, what you're referencing. So after, after 9-11, after September 11, 2001, um, it would be the second time, I should, I should note, that there's this spike of antipathy, particularly in the United States, if not in the Western world, towards Iranians or people of uh, Middle Eastern background. The first one, of course, being the, the revolution and the hostage crisis in, uh, in 1979, 1980, which I was going to ask you about as well, but let's stick with The second one being 9-11, where suddenly anybody Middle Eastern or Iranian, even though Iranians don't have anything to do with 9-11, becomes persona non grata. And so you're talking about uh, that period where um, you suddenly start feeling this on the streets in in the U.S. Yeah, I saw it openly. Since I saw it openly, then I heard on the news that the immigration had asked all non citizen foreigners to come report to immigration to see what their status is. And I saw and I heard that there were at least 20 Iranian families that had reported to immigration to just say, you know, what their status is. And they were holding them for weeks, couple of weeks. And I said, my God, there isn't anybody that can talk on our behalf. And I said, you know what? I want to be a person that if I call, they'll take my call. I want to be that person to start doing that. So I decided at that time, I'll take time off. I took a whole year off my work and I studied everything about Beverly Hills regarding the laws, the everything about it, about all the different organizations, all the different schools, all the different uh, situations that there is, so that I would be familiar with it. So I couldn't lose. I said, I'll take time off, as you said, methodical, to learn what it takes to become a, a winner. 
And that's, I couldn't lose that. I just put everything that I could into it. Tell you the truth, uh, I was on vacation in Hollywood with my wife, and she was at the pool, and I was at the pool too. But I was reading all the ordinances and the laws and regulations in Beverly Hills while I'm on a trip, because I wanted to be knowledgeable. So when they mm. ask me a question, I will know the answer. When you, this is in the lead up to uh, your first term as mayor, which is 2007, you realize that you have to, of course, get the votes of non-Iranians. Uh, you know, you got to be bigger than just the Iranian community to win, to become the mayor of Beverly Hills, and you want to speak for everybody. But you also want the votes of the Iranian um, community in, in, in Beverly Hills. And you've talked about how Iranians in Beverly Hills were afraid to vote at first. And, and Jimmy, this reminds me of, um, I, mean, I mean, unfortunately, this hasn't entirely dissipated, this, uh, this way of, uh, this disposition. Uh, it reminds me that we have um, Bita Melania coming on the show soon to talk about something called the Iranians Count Campaign, which is to get Iranian Americans to register in the 2020 right. census in your country, in the United States. And I was when I was researching that, the census and, Ameri and Iranians uh, registering for it, I was shocked to find out that the majority of Iranians in America do not respond or out themselves for the census. And of course, this means our community doesn't get the benefits of being seen as a large minority group that should be counted, that should be recognized. Why why are Iranians so afraid of these things, even voting for you? Uh, I think it's fear. They're fearful to put their name on anything because they don't trust government as a whole. They think if they put their name on any document, that that document will be gone to different areas and I didn't know that when I started running. I thought, oh my God, I'll get the help of the Iranians and Americans, uh, others, uh, non-Iranians to win. But then I realized they were so fearful. And at times they would say, we love to have you, but don't please don't put my name down. Don't put my name on anything. I, uh, who knows, maybe the immigration will come after me. Most of them were also afraid of uh, IRS, the tax authorities. They said, you know, they'll, once we get our name, they'll go and review and see who we are. And they were afraid. Uh, so the fear was a major part. And one of the major reasons for it was most of these people really did not vote when they were in Iran. Uh. So they're not even socialized to to know about voting, to expect to vote. No, they're, they're, they're just fearful of putting their name to any document. How do you convince them to, to do so? Actually, I made a mission of mine to, to make sure that happens. And the, the way that happened was that I decided to have two types of running for the mayorship. One was the ordinary way of having a voting, a manager to, to deal with the non-Persians. Then I hired somebody else also as the campaign manager to handle the Iranians oh. because I wanted to convince them that it's not dangerous, it's not bad. And the reason 
I wanted to do that because I said, your kids are here. You're not going to go back to Iran. In a long time ago, I used to say, I know you are here and you're still hanging and you have your clothing still in a suitcase. You've talked about the suitcase mentality, yes. Yeah, it was a suitcase. They they thought in a two years, five years from now, we'd go back to Iran. All of this thing would be done. I said, it's too long. It's too far. Your kids now determine where you are, not you. Your kids are at school. They're going to grow up. They're going to do that. For the sake of your children, you have to be involved. So one of the campaigns that I had was rather than going to Persian families, I would go to their kids. So I would go to all the schools and I would talk to the children. I would give them a pen, something that says vote for Jimmy. Mm. Give him a brochure in English and in Farsi. I said, go to your home, tell your father and mother, why don't you vote for Jimmy? So they went home and they started, we met this guy, he's running and doing this. So the children kind of forced the parents to get involved. That's so interesting. And it worked? It worked. They were the cause of me getting my vote from Iranian because they came. They finally came because the children asked them to come. Did you, the first time you became, I mean, by the time you run for your second term, you're, you're Mayor Jimmy. I mean, you, you know, people know you and, and, uh, and so as an incumbent, uh, you've got that sort of advantage and you don't have to make a name for yourself. But in that first run to become mayor, given that it was a pioneering kind of run, uh, sadly, I mean, it's, we, we haven't had a lot of people in our Iranian diaspora who've, who've held political office partly because of the fear, I suppose. Even today, even in the in the run-up run to the United States uh, elections, uh, presidential elections, where there's also some congressional and Senate seats, you may be aware that there's some Iranian, um, uh, born, people of Iranian descent who are running, who are getting some backlash from some of the candidates who are running against them. Did you face that? Did anybody actually, by the time you're running for mayor, take issue with the fact that you're of Iranian background? They were kind of afraid. They thought, uh, uh, I'm going to turn a city of Beverly Hills into Tehran, Tehranjalus. They thought I'm going to bring a bazaar there, or they thought I'm (laughs) going to change everything to be what they thought Iranians were. So I was very careful with that. And in order to separate myself from what they thought, I decided to use my technology background uh, to create a certain types of I- initiatives. So I came with the idea that uh, I am here and because I'm Iranian, because I'm Jewish, we might have some other people that don't like it. And as a result, I want to make Beverly Hills the safest city and to make it safe, I have to make it very smart. Ah. I decided to bring every type of technology that there was. This is the smart city, the famous smart city tagline that you created. Yeah. So I decided to come up with a name of smart city. There was no city in America or anywhere that was called smart city. There was none. So I came with the idea of smart city. And I said, I'm going to accomplish these things. 
that will help the police, it will help immigration, it will help everybody, and the residents will feel safe. It wasn't just technologies that were for safety, but also were convenience. I said, you know, if, you, if, it's, if it's raining and your sprinklers are on, that's not very smart. So I came up with ideas that I want all our sprinklers in the city to be controlled by satellite, by weather, to see whether they should, or by the wetness in the ground, whether they should come on or not, or other things. Uh, so I came up with cameras that have uh, special software, as they analyze, called analytic software, and other software with it, so that the safety was up. So it became very, very important for the, for the city to be safe. Uh, to tell you the truth, I did have uh, um, death threat when I was running. You did? Yeah. Actually, I had letters and death threat. From whom? So, uh, Persian families. I don't know who they were. Death threats from Far Persians? It was Farsi. Oh, my God. Yeah, if, if you continue, it says, if you continue with the way you're going, you're going to end up like Mr. Such and Such. And that Mr. Such and Such uh, had his uh, throat cut uh, a month before somewhere in Los Angeles. So there was definitely a, so I showed it to the police. They said it's absolutely positive and very important. So I did hire a protector. I, uh, somebody that was with me all the time drove my cars and the, the police gave me special uh, beepers uh, while in, in case I push the beeper, they will come. It's, it's, so it's, it's, it's incredibly sad because, you you know, if the moment you say, I, I got death threats, one would naturally, you know, reflexively go, oh, it was a, you know, a, a stereotypical American redneck who doesn't want an Iranian a Jew writing for, and then it turns out to be an Iranian, uh, you know, or people writing this to you in, in Farsi. And when you talk about the distrust or the people being afraid to put their name up or put their hand up and put their name on a form, et cetera, uh, some of that is is this fear of this regime that has put so much fear into people of, you know, we're going to find you, we're going to create trouble for you. Uh, when you became mayor or on the run to become mayor the first time, uh, hear from uh, any of the authorities back in Iran, what was the reaction in Iran to you making a splash as becoming this the first uh, Iranian-American mayor, mayor of a big city? Actually, from what I heard through not uh, not through government, from family members, other people, uh, they were proud that somebody wants to become a mayor of Beverly Hills and he's Persian. So it was very positive on their side. From the regime? Yeah, not the regime, oh, but well, the yeah. people. I, I never, I have to tell you something. Uh, yes, there was somebody that uh, knew uh, the president. Uh -huh. Ahmadinejad. And this friend told me that I asked my cousin to ask Ahmadinejad, why don't you invite Mr. Delshad to come to Iran? And he says, by all means, we would give him a red carpet if he came. Hmm. So they were positive that somebody is making positive move in other areas, other countries. Tell me about proclaiming Neda Day after the Green Movement protests in 2009. 
I, I think she represented young, uh, progressive, especially woman that gave her life in Iran uh, for this. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't see our government doing anything special to make that happen. So I took the concept, the idea to, uh, to our city council and others uh, to pass a resolution to make that day very special in, in honor of Neda because she represented so many others. Yes. You've been so generous with your time. I won't keep you too much longer. I just have a couple more questions about the diaspora and your reflections on it. This You, you talked about the suitcase mentality, and this would be the mindset um, when Iranians came to the U.S. in the 70s and then after the years after the revolution uh, and would have this expectation that they were only staying for a while, squatting before they're going to return to Iran, this exilic mindset. Do you believe that that has finally changed, or is there still that kind of undertone to uh, the thinking of people in the Iranian community in America as you know them? No, I think it has definitely changed. Definitely. I can see uh, others running for uh, other uh, offices uh, all over, whether it's a council or some other places. Uh, and I not only I see that, but I see them so involved uh, in discussion, politics, uh, there are so much involvement at who is good. Is it, is it this president or is it that president? Even though we have this agreement, but I congratulate them for wanting to get involved and seeing that this is my country now. You know, uh, uh, Iran was our vatan. You know, this is where we were. Mm. That's, we'll never let go. That's our vatan but we are residents here. So this is what we have to do. You know, um, I was telling you when we had a, a phone call before that you, you, you self-identify as both Iranian and as Jewish, and, and you're intimately involved and a member of both those communities. And Jim, we often look to the Jewish community as a diaspora that has done a really good job overall of being supportive of each other, seemingly anyway, and addressing common interests. In fact, Fidus Naderi was making this point and referenced it when he was on our program. Why can't we be more like the Jewish community rather than suffer through all of our divisions and individualism in the Iranian community? Do you have any insight onto this? Uh, yes, I do. I think uh, f for couple of thousand years, two thousand years, Jews have been uh, spread all over the world uh, because once they left their homeland uh, and at that time Jerusalem or called whatever it was, they had to survive themselves. And in order to survive, they had to take care of themselves and create communities, whether it was called Mahale in Iran, or villages, or ghettos, other places, they had to really take care of themselves. So uh, they trusted each other. And as a result, they created this feeling that we need to take care of ourselves. So if there is something good, we got to support it. Uh, otherwise, we will be again this uh, um, moved around. And I think that's something that even once they left Iran, 
even if they are in Israel, they're doing the same thing. The Iranian Jews in Israel are very similar. They live almost like they live in Iran. They have their own music and their own food and their own culture. They honor that. They believe in that. And the ones that came in uh, America also, uh, they're very tolerant of others, at the same time very protective. And so what can we learn as an Iranian community? Um, what have you learned, I should say, maybe, about how we can operate better as a collective and as a community? Uh, I, I think to, to trust ourselves uh, that uh, we have some common points, whether doesn't matter on the religion, but we have a common culture. Our culture is very old, very beautiful, and we need to protect that. We need to not only defend it, protect it, but we also need to encourage others to understand and get the best out of us, not, not the worst. Don't let others paint us in what they want us to be. We paint ourselves what we are. And that's a beautiful painting if we all trust each other and work together. And just put the uh, things that divide us separate. You know, throw away anything that's fanatic. Whether it's a Jewish fanatic, Christian, or Muslim fanatic, put those away and say, this, we have a beautiful culture Iranian culture, and we need to uh, protect it, defend it, and also to encourage others. Beautifully said, sir. I, I, if I can ask you one final question, I would say, you know, you are sitting in um, a big city in, in uh, a big and important country in the United States that's heading into a big election. And without uh, needing to even take a side or, or, or get uh, sort of political about it, if you had the, 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 the loudspeaker tuned into the ears of all the American, uh, Iranian Americans living in the United States uh, and beyond, the mayor of the country, beyond just being the mayor of Beverly Hills, what would you want them to do in terms of getting involved? I would want them to be more educated regarding the politics. Uh, politics is always local. We only vote of what affects my pocket, my family, myself. But unless you're educated, then you are uh, not getting involved and you are not doing a uh, service to your background, to your people. So depending which place you are, how involved you are, become more aware uh, of, of the politics because it does affect you. It does affect our country, it affects our people, it affects our uh, health, it affects everything. Uh, too bad that a lot of Iranians were not involved in voting and politics in Iran, so when they come here or other countries, they kind of stay away. They don't get involved. But I think the situation has passed we got to open up the suitcases we have, hang our clothes, and says, this is our country, this is where I'm staying, and I want to be involved. So I want to be educated. Talk to your children. 
they are much more uh, aware of what's going on. Uh, actually, uh, what's happening in America right now, we have uh, a separation between everybody, not in inside the country, even in families. We have husband and wives that are fighting on who to vote for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's good. That's good? That, that's very good, because that means they are getting involved. I have discussions with my children uh, about who to vote for, what not to vote for, what to do and what not to do. And I said to him, I'm proud of you. I don't agree with your concept, but I'm proud of you for being involved. And this is what we need to do. Parents should encourage their children to get involved, even if they are thinking uh, it's not the same as the thinking of the parents who to vote for. But it's good. It's good as long as we're listening to each other, though, right? I, we had um, Homer Sashar on the other uh, last week, and and uh, somebody um, posted on our thing. I don't like this person, and I and I I actually responded and said, "Oh, did you listen to the interview?" And she said, "No, but I think she's a Biden supporter, so I don't like her." And I thought, you know, this is this is not helpful, right? Uh, and then went on to say, uh, "Because Biden supports the regime, or something like that." So, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it's the it's the not listening to each other part that's difficult for me. I don't blame them because they're getting uh, bombarded from both sides. So there isn't so much to listen to. I know, uh, I think uh, there are some people that have taken sides. And to me, when you take sides without listening, you're becoming fanatic. Mm. Uh, and uh, I just don't like fanaticism. And when, when you don't listen, we don't hear. Uh, and I think in even though community may be like that but within families they should talk uh, i know so many people on both sides of the issues and i have great relationship and respect for both of them it's amazing that you've walked that line uh, listen i know before the we before we totally end the interview you had said that you <laughs> you want to tell there's a couple more jokes or another joke <laughs> you want to tell before we we finish off go ahead you, you got the floor Okay, so uh, first time I became a mayor, there was a big, big uh, celebration and a big party, and everybody in the party was calling me, congratulations, Mr. Mayor, congratulations, how are you, and this and that. And I was talking, and I told my wife, honey, I am thirsty. Can you get me a glass of water from the bar? (laughs) Yes. And she went to the bar, and I'm looking on the side, and see the bartender come around the bar and uh, hug her and talk to her. And she was talking like they know each other for a long time. She brought the water. I said, honey, what was that all about between you and the bartender? She says, honey, you don't know, but this bartender many years ago asked me to marry him. (laughs) And I didn't accept. I said, oh, my God, you would have been married to one of the wonderful bartenders now you married me and now you're married to a mayor of beverly hills she says honey if i would have married him he would have been the mayor of beverly hills (laughs) well done Uh, i'm glad you i'm glad you got that last one in there i appreciate it thank you (laughs) and i'm sure she'll appreciate it as well (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I always give her that credit.
<laughs> Thank you so and much. Another one that I used uh, was after after the mayorship, after I was finished with mayorship, uh, I saw she was buying a lot of lottery tickets. <laughs> Who's I this? Said, your, your wife? Yeah. yeah. I said, honey, why are you buying so many lottery tickets? She said, well, you're not a mayor anymore. You're not working. <laughs> Maybe I'll win some big money. I said, well, if you want $100 million, are you still going to love me? She says, of course I'm going to love you. I'm going to miss you. <laughs> uh, I, I am so grateful for the time that you spent. You've been um, more than generous giving us all of this time. It's been educational. It's been energizing. It's been funny. Uh, I won't soon forget the, sunny, the, 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 the toast joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you very much, and thank you for uh, what you're doing. I think uh, Rock uh, does a very beautiful service uh, that ta gets people to really say uh, what is the essence of us and what is what made us who we are among all the Persians. So I congratulate you and and everyone that's been so. Uh, patient with me being available and I'm glad we finally made it and thank you very much for your comments and for your homework before Merci and I hope to see you in person before too long and I'm so glad that you're feeling better as well Thank you so much again Khodafis Khodafis Bye-bye Jimmy Jamshid Delshad the official ambassador of Beverly Hills and an acclaimed management consultant, motivational speaker, and investor as the chairman of Delshad Capital Group. From 2007 to 2011, he was the mayor of Beverly Hills. Jimmy Delshad joined us from Beverly Hills, California today. صد تا طرفدار داری همه تو رو دوست دارن و ذهن گرفتار داری دمتم گرم دمتم گرم دمتم گرم دمتم گرم نزدیک میشم دور میشم بلکه مقبول در این راه پر از استرس و وصله ناجور بشم این قسم این قسم این قسم من درد میشم میرم تو چشمات عشق میشم میرم رو گونت زلف میشم میام رو شونت من باد میشم میرم تو موهات سیگار میشم میرم رو لپات دود میشم میرم تو ریت ای بخ سراغ من بیا که رخت خواب من با این خیال خامم گرم نمیشه ای بخ سراغ من بیا که رخت خواب من با این خیال خامم گرم نمیشه ای بخ سراغ من بیا که رخت خواب من با این خیال خامم گرم نمیشه Yes. Little taste of our friend Ali Azimi and Pishtar Ahmad, or Prelude. That song from 2013 that was all the rage with the incredible video. Well, that was quite a conversation with uh, Mayor Delshad. <laughs> I, 
Well, I, I, I love that he needed to tell the second joke at the, <laughs> at the end. He stopped and says, because he had said before, he told me he had, uh, when we were WhatsApping before that, you know, he said, uh, at the end, I want to tell a joke. As it turns out, he told a joke in the body of the interview as yes. well. But then, so I knew that he was going to, I said, that's why at the end I go, okay, you want to uh, do your joke now. And then I say goodbye. He wants to do another joke. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Uh, He's so funny. But also, what a what a walk through history getting to talk to him. Yes, fantastic. And and what a humble guy as a mayor of a city. You know, he's really and I I I I I didn't know him very well. I mm. knew that Jimmy Delshad. I know of him, but yes. now I really like this guy. You yeah, know, he's yeah. he's undeniably likable. Uh, Navon has walked into. Our studio, uh, the, the 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 author, the the man, the writer behind our first Rook read <laughs> that's going to be on our website. You were uh, in the booth there listening to the Jimmy Delshot interview. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, he's um, he's a, an iconic person with an iconic character. Yes, indeed. Um, well, let's get to why you're here just before we wrap up the show. We, so, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, we've we're, we've started this new segment on our website on our uh, blog section called the Rook Read. And uh, you've penned the first Rook read. Uh, you are Navon. You're, uh, I know you as a singer-songwriter, but you're also a great writer. Thank you. Uh, you're a 23-year-old kid from Toronto who came from Iran about 10 years ago. You wanted to write about, uh, you. in fact, you had this idea of writing about this because you were inspired by the uh, Abbas Milani episode from a couple of weeks ago. Um, you, you don't need to give the whole piece here because, of course, people <laughs> should go to the site to read it. But uh, in short, why were you so inspired to write? about that that interview because i've been uh, quite distanced because i don't consider myself as a, as a political person or someone that's too interested into history or, or politics i uh was listening to the podcast and i was really i found it really interesting the way he brought me back to uh his view of history because i feel like historians each of them have have a certain view and um his view comes from a researched um perspective I guess uh, so I found it really interesting uh, from that respect more than just research like he, he is this uh, master academic but he's also lived through it all exactly, right? he yeah. was put and in jail worked, by the yeah. Shah's regime that he was yeah. on the outs with the current regime and so so he's uh, yeah he's kind of uh, uh, from being an activist in, Ber in, in at Berkeley to being an academic at uh, leader at Stanford now um, you 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 say something quite heavy in the piece where you say this has been a uh, and I'm and I'm quite moved or honored that it was this this um, audio program this podcast that did it for you but you said you realizing you've been brainwashed I mean that sounds like a that's a very heavy word but what what do you mean by brainwashed well the school in Iran specifically when it comes to history it's very specifically written um, at least when I was going back to school I was I was back in school in, in Iran they had um, their history books which is uh, 15 years ago 10, 10 years 10 ago years 10 12 ago, yeah. years ago yeah uh, their history book did mention Hakam Anishion and so on from my understanding right now it's very very limited uh, back then it was still very um, a biased point of view uh, you had maybe a couple chapters on Hakam Anishion and those uh, previous monarchies and then 
the Islamic regime was like a whole book. Right. So um, yeah, and then that that view that uh, they that the perspective that they give to students, it's uh, often quite very violent from uh, previous monarchies, or um, bias ne- a negative type of bias. So that's so. What's it like to um, kind of? Uh, first of all, it hasn't occurred to you in the, in the previous 10 years until now that, that you had a skewed sense of things given growing up under the regime in Iran? Well, it did occur to me, but I was just not... Um, you didn't want to go there? Yeah. I didn't find it. And how does it feel to be going there? It's... You go back and you question everything that you've learned, right? So um, you question if anything that you know is is real or is is the truth and that's kind of alarming <laughs> and you say this as someone who in the piece says you know you love uh iran uh yeah, and absolutely. you love being in canada but it's uh it, you're it, you still feel like your home is iran yeah absolutely it's a uh, um i think um uh, faribor's nadiri he gave a great example of the Firuz Nadiri, uh, Firuz Nadiri or Fadi Bors Mukhtari. It could be either of them. <laughs> I, I'm glad yeah. you've been listening to the episodes, though. Yeah, he gave the example of um, egg and the egg yolk. So uh, that's that's, the, much that's that Firuz Nadiri. Yeah. yeah. Um, listen, man, thank you uh, for popping by to, to to do a little promo for this. Uh, so at uh, Rook media.com and the blog section rookmedia.com is where to find Navon's uh, first Rook Read piece uh, about processing that Abbas Milani uh, interview. It's a very personal piece and I, and I thank you for offering it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being I appreciate here. appreciate it. This is Full Time for Rook for today. I'm going to go out on some music by a guy named Hashrav in Tehran, uh, a musician that Shia knows actually. They used to play together. Um, this is a relatively new piece. It came out last week, uh, last year, I should say, called In Memory of Yasmin's Waterfall. Hashrav, you spell X-A-S-H-R-A-V. Uh, thanks so much to the Rook team for all of your work, uh, for all the folks in our extended family here who are working on this and volunteering as well. Sarah, Susan, Ponta, Shada, Cassie, Shia, Reza, Mohammed, Merdad, Navon, who's here, Roham. Thanks to all you guys. Looking forward to Thursday. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Gian Gameshi. Mizunbashi. Mizunbashi.